Lamentations again as we are moving forward verse by verse every week through the book. That was Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. And today we come to chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Paul writes, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Amen. Snoop Dogg (laughs) and Martha Stewart. Now, chances are good that most of you know one or the other of those two names. Probably most of you know both of those names. Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart. Snoop, of course, is a man who came up in the Wild West streets of Compton, California. Exposed to gang life and violence, drug use and rap music. And Martha Stewart is the polar opposite. Martha was born a Jersey girl, a confirmed Catholic at age three, graduating with a degree in architectural history and art. She is the textbook definition of appeal for the suburban housewife, gaining her notoriety and Fame, decorating and designing, sewing and displaying her cooking skills. She made a fortune publishing her magazine, Martha Stewart Living. And of course has down through the years been a guest or the star of many live TV cable network shows. And I say this to say these two just don't seem initially to have much in common when you think about it. Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart, the West Coast gangsta rapper, the East Coast incarnation of suburbia, one singing lyrics about all kinds of licentious living, the other cooking and doing crafty projects on TV, one with dreads, the other with straight blonde hair, one in flannel shirts and baggy pants, the other in dresses, pantsuits, and turtlenecks. One in sunglasses, the other in reading glasses, one with a cigar in his hand, the other with a cup of coffee in her hand. But what if I told you that Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart are actually very good friends? Maybe you already knew that, maybe you didn't, but it's true. 
Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart, these seemingly polar opposites from polar opposite ends of the country and polar opposite upbringings and family lifestyles, are actually in real life very good friends. But did you know that the Abrahamic and the Mosaic Covenant are not so different than the relationship enjoyed by Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg? In many senses, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant of the Old Testament on the surface seem to be very different. And in some respects, that's because they are different. The Abrahamic covenant was a covenant of promise. Now, let me stop real quick and say that if you don't know what a covenant is in Scripture, a covenant is simply a relationship that God establishes with a certain person or people that he has chosen to enter a relationship with. It's like a formal relationship initiated by God. We call that in the Bible a covenant. And there were two men, especially toward the beginning of the Bible, named Abraham and Moses, with whom God initiated a covenant relationship. But the covenant terms that God made with Abraham and with Moses seem, in some respects, to be very different. The covenant with Abraham was initiated according to promise. The covenant with Moses according to law. The Abrahamic covenant was all about believing. The Mosaic covenant was filled with doing. The Abrahamic covenant is unilateral. That means sovereignly administered by God to Abraham with no terms necessary to be met by Abraham. The covenant with Moses was bilateral, meaning it goes both ways, and in large part, blessing was incumbent upon obedience. They seem as different as Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart. But in this passage, which is admittedly a difficult one to interpret and preach, I believe that the critical truth that we are to take away is that Abraham and Moses, in their covenantal headships, though different in several respects, are not enemies but friends. The Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenants given by God agree and cooperate as friends, not enemies. Now, let me just broach this subject the way Paul does by sharing with you his analogy. Look right there in verse number 15. His analogy. He starts talking about this subject by drawing a a human parallel. He's talking about heavenly relationships here between God and people. But he's going to draw a parallel or analogy between the way people relate to people. Verse 15, to give a man-made or human example, brothers. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. You read that word in verse number 15, covenant. That's the literal word, but the idea is that of a human contract. A human contract that people enter into. He draws on something that I think even living where we are and when we do today... Uh, we can identify with, and that is once a legal binding contract is entered into and certified, it is agreed upon, then neither party can change the terms, right? Or annul it. 
once you sign those papers on the mortgage and you agree <clears throat> to a certain interest rate with the bank and a certain term of your loan, aren't you thankful that once those papers are signed and legally certified by the lawyers, that the bank can't come back, say, two months later and say, we're going to raise your interest rate and your mortgage is now instead of $900 for the next 30 years, it's going to be $1,100 for the next 30 years. We just decided to do that. So that previous contract is null and void. And Paul says that's not how it works legally, is it? Thankfully so. Once you enter into a contract, it ought to be legally binding and it cannot be changed. This practice reflects a biblical principle of honesty. After all, isn't it telling that you have to often get contracts and signatures and lawyers involved because isn't it of human nature for us to tend to go back on our word? To not keep our word. I would ask you today, how important is your own word to those with whom you have relationships? Do those vows you took at the marriage altar matter to you? Do you remember what you said when you said, I do to your spouse? For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. In plenty and in want. Till death do us part. Do you remember? Do you remember those vows you took? Do you, if you're a member of the church today, do you remember the vows you took when you covenanted with God and his people to say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I pledge myself to support this church in her worship and work with the best of my ability by God's grace, so help me God. Do you remember your vows that you took with your spouse? Do you remember the vows that you've taken with your spouse? Do those mean to you what they mean to God? We have to have contracts in so many various and diverse areas of our lives because humans tend to defraud one another. Humans tend to deceive one another. Human beings, being sinners that we are, tend not to be people of their word, but not so among God's people. May it never be in God forbid. May we be the kind of people who say what we mean and mean what we say and give our word and keep our word and be faithful to our word and do what we tell people they're going to do as good testimonies that we belong to the God who cannot lie. Now Paul draws this analogy of a human contract. You can't go back and change the terms after the contract has been made. But that's really just the analogy. You got all that preaching for free. Now he uses this analogy to parlay it, to, to dovetail it into the theological point that he's trying to prove regarding the relationship between the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, 15, and 17 and the Mosaic covenant of Exodus chapters, say, 19 to 24, but primarily Chapter 20. How do these covenants and these two men, covenantal heads, relate to one another? Now, with this analogy, he offers three arguments. One in verse 16, one in verse 17, one in verse 18. Three arguments to show how Moses 
and Abraham are friends, though different. First, he gives us a grammatical argument, let's call it. Notice verse number 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. You've already heard these promises read, at least to some extent, in your hearing. Genesis chapter number 12, one of the promises was to this old man, I will give you the land of Canaan. I promise, said God, you are going to get a land flowing with milk and honey, which means grass and flowers. Milk is produced by cattle, and cattle need grass. And honey is produced by bees, and bees need flowers. I, you, Abraham, you're living in Ur of the Chaldees as dusty and dry and arid as a bunch of rocks and mountains and terrain, but I'm going to give you a land that's beyond your wildest dreams. And the promise is still yours today, child of God. Amen. The half has not yet been told. No eye has seen, the heart of man has not imagined, says Paul, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. There is a land that is fairer than day and you might not be able to see it with your physical eyes, but oh, Christian, by faith, can you see it afar? God has promised no less to you than he did to Abraham that there is a land awaiting you. You're in a barren world, yes, right now, but there is a land awaiting Abraham. I promise, said God. Property, land. But another promise that God gave to Abraham was in the Hebrew, Zerah, Z-E-R-A-H. I will give you Zerah. And sometimes this word Zerah is translated in the English as offspring. Sometimes it's translated as seed. And God said to this old man, Abraham, I'm going to give to you a seed. That is children and grandchildren and great, great grandchildren. But Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looks at this Zerah promise of seed and offspring. And he says, you know, I see something that is there by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that is, this is an exquisite example of the preciseness of the inspiration of Scripture. Paul sees that this noun, Zerah, is what we call a collective noun. A collective noun. Um, you're, I don't know if you're a grammatician or not. I'm not by any stretch of the imagination. But, but a collective noun is a noun that is the same in number whether it is referring to a singular or a plural. The best example I could think of in our language is moose. Maybe you say mooses, but that's not the right way to say it. You could talk about one moose or ten moose. Even now, like I've got some doubts. Doesn't feel right. Or bison. There's a good one. One bison or ten bison. It's a collective noun. So the way it appears, it can either be a singular or a plural. And so it is with this Hebrew noun, zerah. It can refer, and it does actually refer to many. Paul is not going to renege 
on the idea that this seed given to Abraham is many. I mean, God had told him. We'll get to this in just a second, but you're gonna, your sins are going to be a whole lot, more than the stars up in the heaven. But Paul says they're going to be one special one. And that's what Paul is really mining down into here when he points out this collective noun in this Hebrew term zerah, taken from the promise given to God, uh, given to Abraham from God in Genesis. Verse 16 says, It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, singular. And Paul tells you who that special son of Abraham really was. Who is Christ, he says. Who is Christ? It's referring to many. Father Abraham, you're going to have many sons and many sons is going to have Father Abraham. Oh, but one son's going to be most important for all the other people who will become sons and daughters of Abraham must become so if and only through knowing the son of Abraham. That's the only way any of us become sons of Abraham is through the son, the offspring of Abraham. Many seed. Oh, but one is going to be more important than all the rest. And his name was Jesus. And it was Jesus himself who said, you see, to his detractors in his day, his detractors, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. In fact, Jesus was pointing out there that he named his son Laughter, Isaac, his seed. He named him Laughter because he was rejoicing that through his seed he believed this promise that his great-grandson was going to be the way for him to obtain the promise of an everlasting inheritance and a land that flowed with milk and honey. That's the grammatical argument. Seed, singular, will be the source of seed, plural. But move with me to the historical argument of verse number 17. Paul is building a case here. See how these interconnect. The grammatical now moving the historical verse number 7 transition statement. This is what I mean. What he's already said about offsprings compared to offspring. One son of Abraham being the basis and foundation for all the other sons of Abraham. This is what I mean. Now here's where Moses enters into the picture. and He starts discussing how it is that Abraham and Moses relate to one another. This is what I mean. A historical argument. Do you see the historical argument? The law. What he means there by the law specifically. This is important because... When scripture uses the term law, sometimes it means the whole Old Testament. Sometimes when the scripture uses the term law, it means the ceremonies of Israel, offering sacrifices and such, and dietary restrictions. And sometimes when the scripture uses the term law, it refers specifically to what we call the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But what Paul specifically means here by law is what we would call the covenant of Sinai given to Moses by God summed up in the Ten Commandments. The Mosaic Covenant, in the center of the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments. This is what I mean. So let me just try to push a little bit of the easy button here for us all. This is what I mean. Let me do a little bit of free translating. The Ten Commandments, for example. 
and everything else that surrounds that you read about in Exodus 19 to 24. The Ten Commandments. This is what I mean, verse 17. The Ten Commandments, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Remember the bank analogy? The bank can't raise your rate if you've already signed the contract. Well, what he's saying here is... 430 years after the final installment of the promise of Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant given to Jacob in the book of Genesis, 430 years later, there's Israel at Sinai, and the Lord makes the Mosaic covenant wherein is included his law. And what Paul is saying is just think of the human analogy because what the, what the false teachers who were troubling the church of Galatia were teaching is that you've got to be good enough to go to heaven. You've got to abide by the law of God to go to heaven. And Paul says that would mean that God has changed the terms of the covenant that he made to Abraham. Do you, do you follow his argumentation here? Sinai is four centuries after the promise to Abraham. And therefore, it could not have annulled what God promised to Abraham. And how did Abraham obtain it? How did Abraham get the promised land? How could it have been that Abraham got the promises of the inheritance given to him by keeping the law when the law was not even codified yet? So Abraham was not saved and didn't receive the promise of inheritance and eternal life by keeping the law because the law, in terms of being written down and inscripturated, was not even given yet. So Paul makes that historical argument that a covenant cannot be annulled after the fact. And that leads right in then, doesn't it, to verse number 18 in this logical argument. A logical argument. He's made the grammatical and the historical to bring you to, the, to really the conclusion of the premises that have preceded. Verse number 18, for if, see the if-then relationship, he's proposing a logical syllogism here. If the inheritance, read their everlasting life, everything promised to Abraham, a land and life forever. If that comes by following Moses, Keeping God's law, if that comes by keeping God's law, then it no longer comes by promise. That is, it is one or the other. The law of excluded middle here. It has to be one or the other. It can't be some conglomeration of both. It can't be some mixture of God's grace and my goodness. God's 75% my salvation and I'm 25% my salvation. Everything that we inherit unto eternal life must either, it's one or the other, it must either be absolute, unvarnished, free, sovereign grace or all of your merit and work. One or the other. When you stand before God, you're going to be graded on one of two scales. Did you, every second of your life, obey the law of God and the Ten Commandments and never violate any of them. Are you perfect? That's how God will judge you on Judgment Day. Or He will judge you according to the fact that you, like Abraham, have believed the promise of 
God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of those two. You're either perfect or you got Jesus. But it can't be both. That's what incidentally he meant earlier in the context where he says in verse number 12, the law is not of faith. He doesn't mean that the law is against faith because the same God who architected the gospel that we believe in is the God who gave the law that we are to love as Christians. They're not against each other. What he means is those are the only two hypothetical ways one might be saved, but you can't mix them together, which is exactly what the false teachers were doing in Galatia. Grace, yes, plus circumcision, plus obedience to the law of God. You need them both. And Paul says you can't have them both. It's got to be one or the other. And I don't know about you, but God forbid that I stand before the Lord having my own righteousness one day because it will not do. It must be perfect. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise. It's got to be one or the other. But how did God give it to Abraham? God gave it to Abraham by promise. I remember watching one of these scared straight um, talk shows. They bring these um, troubled kids, these kids that are very disrespectful, very troubled, had, had hard childhoods. And they would bring them on stage in front of this military drill sergeant, this big, buff, strong, hardcore, grizzled military drill sergeant. And these kids are like 7, 8, 9, 10 years, 11 years, 12 years old. I mean, they're young kids but they've just had a bad home life and a bad childhood, and they've never had any proper raising, as we might say in the South, not a whole lot of discipline and structure in their life, and, and um, they're just on the way to getting in trouble later. And so they try to bring this drill sergeant on and kind of scare them a little bit, you know. And there was this one boy, he was probably nine years old, and, and he had never been taught respect. He was always getting in trouble, had a real smart mouth on him, and this drill sergeant, you know, they paraded him on the camera, which a lot of that stuff, I'm just like, you ought not be doing that with a little child on national TV. But they bring this little child up on stage, and the drill sergeant's like, boy, what's wrong with you? At first, he's like, act, the little boy's like trying to act all hard. And the drill sergeant gets in his face, and he says, if I was your daddy, I'd instill some discipline in your life. And if I was your daddy, I'd make you act right. If I was your daddy, you'd treat me with respect. If I was your, he was trying to scare him like, oh, I'm glad this guy's not my daddy. If I was your daddy, if I was your daddy, he's like, now you, do you want me to be your daddy? And the boy immediately said, yes. And even a hardened, grizzled army drill sergeant couldn't take that emotionally. Started to break down. This boy just needed a daddy, didn't he? Boy just wanted a daddy in his life. He'd never had a daddy in his life. Because it was having a daddy that would have been the reason that he obeyed. He didn't need to obey so that someone would be his father. He needed a father to be taught to obey. And really that brings up the point that Paul makes concerning the relationship between Abraham and Moses. That Abraham believed and Moses came after to teach believers how to obey therefore let me close by making three observations very briefly from this passage as we listen to the words of Paul I think one application we learn is Christian stay out of the ditches stay out of the ditches Christian 
When you're learning to drive, that's one of the first things you need to learn. Let me keep it on the road, between the lines, and out of the ditches. But that's basic instruction for Christian living as well. Because there are some professing Christians who need to hear again the promise to Abraham. You're plagued with feelings of guilt. You've committed some sin and still causes you to feel ashamed. And you feel broken and you feel remorseful and you feel repentant. But you still feel like, how could God ever really love me? And what you need to hear is what Abraham needed to hear. You need to hear that believing in believing you receive all the righteousness and acceptance with God you will ever need because you receive Jesus himself. And maybe you're in the ditch of legalism. That your past haunts you and condemns you. You have trouble accepting the forgiveness of God and trouble in your conscience with assurance of salvation. Hear the words of Paul. The inheritance does not come by law, but by promise. It's God's faithfulness to you, not your faithfulness to God, whereby you are accepted with him. On the other hand, you might be a Christian who makes too little of your sin. When's the last time that, when is the last time that you were really convicted over your sin? I mean, when's the last time you had pain of conscience over something you did that you know was wrong and it bothered you? If it's been a while, maybe you're in the other ditch. Maybe you need St. Moses to remind you that God, when he saves you, calls you to live an obedient life. Stay out of the ditch of, on the one hand, being crushed by your former condemnation. Listen to the promise given to Abraham that it is not of merit or works. On the other hand, stay out of the ditch of not caring about your sin and making light and little of God's holy law and let Moses guide your feet. Abraham was righteous before God because he believed, not because he obeyed. And yet, if you are one who tends to take the things of God lightly, if you're unmoved and spiritually cold, if you have no pain of conscience, friend, over your sin and living for the Lord is low on your priority list, know this, God is holy and will not be mocked. And he is a God, yes, gracious, but also committed to making you holy. Stay out of the ditches covenant with Abraham was made to show an unjustified people how to be saved. 400 years later, the covenant with Moses was given to show a justified people how to be sanctified. How to please the Lord. Stay out of those ditches. Secondly, study with diligence. Let's briefly touch on this. But man, this passage is like this that recall to mind the words of Peter that he wrote about Paul's writings. Many are hard to be understood. And I think this is one of them. There are places in scripture that are hard to be understood but listen you know what will help you so much to understand your new testament is to have a basic understanding of your old testament you think about the words in this passage like offspring and inheritance and law and promise and covenant 
and who was Abraham after all, and who was Moses, and what is the Abrahamic covenant, what is the Mosaic covenant, and how do they relate to one another? I mean, it will make the most learned scholar scratch his head and say, what's going on here? Much less people who are in the daily grind and don't have time to spend 40 hours a week studying the word. But what I am telling you is, as best you can, by God's grace, be a student of Scripture. And if you want to know the New Testament, you need to know your Old Testament. Because the New Testament was built on the theology of the Old Testament. The writers of the New Testament had as their Bible the books of the Old Testament. So friends, let us be people who know our doctrine. Who know our doctrine. If you say, I'm incapable of learning, I have a hard time learning. Well, that's why the Lord gave you pastors and elders. I love getting questions about the Bible and theology. I don't have all the answers. But we'll do our best to try to go through it together. Study with diligence. Stay out of the ditches. And finally, friend, this passage teaches us anything. It is this, that we ought to settle our souls in divine promise. Settle our souls in divine promise. In Greek mythology, there was a titan. You've probably all heard of him. A titan named Atlas. Atlas had the body that all men covet. I'm talking about a perfectly proportioned biceps, bulging pecs and abs and all the rest. But this titan named Atlas was condemned for his transgression. And what he had to do for the rest of eternity was hold up the world and the heavens on his shoulder. You remember the story of Atlas. You've probably seen the statue on Fifth Avenue in the RCA building of New York City, a gigantic statue. There's Atlas, this statue, and he's training and he's bending. He's got the world on his back and he's bowing under. It's like the weight of the world is crushing down on his shoulder. And he's having to hold that thing up for all eternity, forever and ever. And I think that statue is so popular and it really resonates, not only because it's an amazing, beautiful work of art, but it resonates with people because you feel that way sometimes, don't you? You feel like Atlas. I bear the weight of the world on my shoulders. I stand before God. I really hope that I've been good enough. I hope God will approve of me. I'm trying so hard. I'm working so hard. I try to be faithful to my spouse and I really work hard and I'm trying to pay my bills and just burden upon burden upon burden compounds down upon your back and you feel like Atlas. Atlas was a myth. He wasn't real. But in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, the man Christ Jesus carried something on his back. A heavy wooden Roman cross he carried it down the way of suffering, the Via Dolorosa. And with that cross on his back, he was carrying not just the wood and the nails. He was carrying the weight, the infinite weight of your sin and my sin. He was bearing shame and scoffing rude. He is bearing our sorrows and carrying our grief. And it is your Savior, friend, who says to you today, Lay that burden down. Do not work. Do not labor to merit a righteousness that you could never merit for your justification, but for the hope of your everlasting inheritance. Lay down the burden of your sin at the foot of the cross. 
For whoever, like Abraham, believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your promise to us. And Lord, when we are weary and heavy laden, we can find our rest in you and lay our burdens down. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your word and how it beautifully complements itself. Even when we look at the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants and how one was given to show how sinners can be made righteous before God by believing how the other shows those who have believed how to live and worship in a way that is pleasing unto you. But Lord, let us never make the mistake of putting the one before the other or in place of the other. We cannot make ourselves righteous through obedience to the law of Moses. We can only be righteous by believing on the righteous seed of Abraham, who is Christ. Fill our hearts with thankfulness for him. Write the truths of your word on our hearts. And make us more like Christ our Savior, we pray in his name. Amen.